Chapter 40 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Danielle Wolf. Consuelo by George Sand. Chapter 40. Have you ever been present at the falling of the water or seen it reascend? said Consuelo in a low voice to the chaplain as he sat comfortably digesting his dinner during the evening. What? What did you say? cried he, bounding up in his chair and rolling his great round eyes. I was speaking to you of the cistern, returned she, without being disconcerted. Have you ever yourself observed the occurrence of the phenomenon? Ah, yes, the cistern. I remember, replied he with a smile of pity. There, thought he, her crazy fit has attacked her again. But you have not answered my question, my dear chaplain, said Consuelo, who pursued her object with that kind of eagerness which characterized all her thoughts and actions, and which was not prompted in the least by any malicious feeling toward the worthy man. I must confess, mademoiselle, replied he coldly, that I was never fortunate enough to observe that to which you refer, and I assure you I never lost my sleep on that account. Oh, I'm very certain of that, replied the impatient Consuelo. The chaplain shrugged his shoulders, and with a great effort rose from his chair in order to escape from so very ardent an inquirer. Well, since no one here is willing to lose an hour's sleep for so important a discovery, I will devote my whole night to it if necessary, thought Consuelo. And while waiting for the hour of retiring, she wrapped herself in her mantle and proceeded to take a turn in the garden. The night was cold and bright, and the mists of evening dispersed in proportion as the moon, then full, ascended toward the Empyrean. The stars twinkled more palely at her approach, and the atmosphere was dry and clear. Consuelo, excited but not overpowered by the mingled effects of fatigue, want of sleep, and the generous but perhaps rather unhealthy sympathy she experienced for Albert, felt a slight sensation of fever which the cool evening air could not dissipate. It seemed to her as if she touched upon the fulfillment of her enterprise and a romantic presentment, which she interpreted as a command and encouragement from Providence, kept her mind uneasy and agitated. She seated herself upon a little grassy hillock studded with larches and began to listen to the feeble and plaintive sound of the streamlet at the bottom of the valley. But it seemed to her as if another voice, still more sweet and plaintive, mingled with the murmurings of the water and by degrees floated upward to her ears. She stretched herself upon the turf in order, being nearer the earth, to hear better those light sounds which the breeze wafted toward her every moment. At last, she distinguished Zdenko's voice. He sang in German, and by degrees she could distinguish the following words, tolerably well arranged to a bohemian air, which was characterized by the same simple and plaintive expression as those she had already heard. There is down there, down there, a soul in pain and in labor, which awaits her deliverance. Her deliverance, her consolation, so often promised. The deliverance seems enchained, the consolation seems pitiless. There is down there, down there, a soul in pain and in labor, which is weary of waiting. When the voice ceased singing, Consuelo rose, looked in every direction for Zdenko, searched the whole park and garden to find him, called him in various places, but was obliged to return to the castle without having seen him. But an hour afterward, when the whole household had joined in a long prayer for Count Albert, and when everybody had retired to rest, Consuelo hastened to place herself near the fountain of tears, and seating herself upon the margin amid the thick mosses and water plants which grew there naturally, and the irises which Albert had planted, 
she fixed her eye upon the motionless water in which the moon, then arrived at the zenith, was reflected as in a mirror. After waiting almost an hour, and just as the courageous maiden, overcome by fatigue, felt her eyelids growing heavy, she was aroused by a slight noise at the surface of the water. She opened her eyes and saw the spectrum of the moon agitated, broken, and at last spread in luminous circles upon the mirror of the fountain. At the same time, a dull rushing sound, at first imperceptible but soon impetuous, became apparent, and she saw the water gradually sink, whirling about as in a funnel, and in less than a quarter of an hour disappear in the depths of the abyss. She ventured to descend several steps. The spiral staircase, which appeared to have been built for the purpose of permitting the household to reach at pleasure the varying level of the water, was formed of granite blocks half buried in the rock or hewn out of it. These slimy and slippery steps afforded no means of support and were lost in the frightful depth. The darkness and the noise of the water, which still splashed at the bottom of the immeasurable precipice, joined to the impossibility of treading securely with her delicate feet upon the stringy ooze, arrested Consuelo in her mad attempt. She ascended backward with great difficulty and seated herself, terrified and trembling, upon the first step. In the meantime, the water still seemed to be continually receding into the bosom of the earth. The noise became more and more remote, till at last it ceased entirely, and Consuelo pondered on the propriety of getting a light in order to examine the interior of the cistern as far as possible from above. But she feared to miss the arrival of him whom she expected, and remained patient and motionless for nearly an hour longer. At last she thought she perceived a feeble glimmer at the bottom of the well, and leaning anxiously forward, she saw that the wavering light ascended little by little. In a short time, she was no longer in doubt. Zdenko was ascending the spiral staircase, aided by an iron chain which was secured to the rocky sides. The noise which he made in raising the chain from time to time and again letting it fall made Consuelo aware of the existence of this species of balustrade, which ceased at a certain height and which she could neither see nor suspect. Zdenko carried a lantern, which he hung on a hook set apart for this purpose, and inserted in the rock about 20 feet below the surface of the soil. Then he mounted the rest of the staircase lightly and rapidly, without any chain or apparent means of support. However, Consuelo, who observed everything with the greatest attention, saw that he helped himself along by catching hold of certain projecting points in the rock, of some wall plants more vigorous than the rest, and of some bent nails which stood out from the sides and with which he seemed perfectly familiar. As soon as he had ascended high enough to see Consuelo, she concealed herself from his view by stooping behind the semicircular stone wall which bordered the well, and which was interrupted only at the entrance of the steps. Zdenko emerged into the light and began slowly to gather flowers in the garden with great care and as if making a selection until he had formed a large bouquet. Then he entered Albert's study, and through the glass door Consuelo saw him for a long while moving the books and searching for one which he appeared at last to have found. For he returned toward the cistern, laughing and talking to himself in a satisfied tone, but in a low and almost inaudible voice, so much did he seem divided between the necessity of muttering to himself, according to his usual custom, and the fear of wakening the family in the castle. Consuelo had not yet asked herself whether she should address him and request him to conduct her to Albert, and it must be confessed at that moment, confounded by what she saw, discouraged in the midst of her enterprise, joyous at having discovered what she so much longed to know, 
but at the same time dismayed at the thoughts of descending into the entrails of the earth and the abyss of water, she did not feel sufficient courage to go forward to the end, but allowed Zdenko to descend as he had mounted, resume his lantern, and disappear, singing in a voice which gained confidence as he sank into the depths of his retreat. The deliverance is enchained, the consolation is pitiless. With outstretched neck and palpitating heart, Consuelo had his name ten times upon her lips to recall him. She was about to decide by a heroic effort when she suddenly reflected that such a surprise might make the unfortunate man stagger upon the difficult and dangerous staircase and perhaps lose his footing. She refrained, therefore, promising herself that she would be more courageous on the next day at the right time. She waited some time longer to see the water again ascend, and this time the phenomenon took place much more speedily. Hardly 15 minutes had elapsed from her losing the sound of Zdenko's voice and the light of his lantern before a dull noise like the distant rumbling of thunder was heard, and the water, rushing with violence, ascended, whirling and dashing against the walls of its prison like a seething cauldron. This sudden eruption of water had something so frightful in its appearance that Consuelo trembled for poor Zdenko, asking herself if, in sporting with such dangers and governing thus the forces of nature, there was no risk of his being overpowered by the violence of the current and of her seeing him float to the surface of the fountain, drowned and bruised like the slimy plants which were tossed on its waves. Still, the means of accomplishing this must be very simple. It only needed perhaps to lower or raise a floodgate, perhaps only to place a stone on his arrival and remove it on his return. But might not this man, always so absent and lost in his strange reveries, be mistaken and remove the stone a little too soon? Could he have come by the subterranean path which gave passage to the water of the spring? Nevertheless, I must pass it with him or without him, said Consuelo, and that no later than the coming night, for there is down there a soul in labor and in pain which waits for me and which is weary of waiting. These words were not sung unintentionally, and it was not without some object that Zdenko, who detests German, and pronounces it with difficulty, made use of that language today. At last she retired to rest, but she had terrible dreams all the rest of the night. Her fever was gradually gaining ground. She did not perceive it, so strong did she feel her courage and resolution. But every moment she started out of her sleep, imagining herself still upon the steps of that frightful staircase and unable to reascend, while the water rose below her with the roar of thunder and the rapidity of lightning. She was so changed the next day that everybody remarked the alteration in her features. The chaplain was unable to refrain from confiding to the canoness that this agreeable and obliging person appeared to him to have her brain somewhat deranged, and the good Wenceslaua, who was not accustomed to seeing so much courage and devotion, began to fear that the porporina was a very imaginative young lady and had a very excitable nervous temperament. She relied too much on her good doors cased in iron and her faithful keys always jingling in her girdle to give credence for any length of time to the entrance and escape of Zdenko the night before the last. She therefore spoke to Consuelo in affectionate and compassionate terms, beseeching her not to identify herself with the unhappiness of the family so as to destroy her health, and made an effort to inspire her with hopes of her nephew's speedy return which she herself in the secret recesses of her heart began to lose. But she was agitated at once by sentiments of fear and hope when Consuelo, with a look glowing with satisfaction and a smile of gentle pride, replied, 
you have good reason to hope, dear madam, and to wait with confidence. Count Albert is alive, and as I hope, not very ill, for in his retreat he is still interested in his books and flowers. I'm certain of it, and could give you proofs. What do you mean to say, my dear child? cried the canoness, struck by her air of conviction. What have you learned? What have you discovered? Speak in the name of heaven. Restore life to a despairing family. Say to Count Christian that his son lives and is not far from this. This is as true as that I love and respect you. The canoness rose for the purpose of hastening to her brother, who had not yet descended to the saloon. But a look and a sigh from the chaplain arrested her steps. Let us not inconsiderately inspire such joyful hopes in my poor Christian's breast, said she, sighing in her turn. If the fact should contradict your sweet promises, my dear child, we should give a death blow to his unhappy father. Then you doubt my words, replied the astonished Consuelo. God forbid, noble Nina, but you may be under an illusion. Alas, this has happened so often to ourselves. You say that you have proofs, my dear daughter. Can you not mention them? I cannot, at least it seems to me I ought not, said Consuelo, somewhat embarrassed. I have discovered a secret to which Count Albert evidently attaches great importance, and I do not think I can reveal it without his permission. Without his permission, cried the canoness, looking at the chaplain irresolutely. Can she have seen him? The chaplain shrugged his shoulders imperceptibly, not comprehending the pain his incredulity inflicted on the poor canoness. I have not seen him, returned Consuelo but I shall see him soon, and so will you, I hope. But I fear I should retard his return if I thwarted his wishes by my indiscretion. May divine truth dwell in your heart, generous creature, and speak through your lips, said Wincheslawa, looking at her with anxious and pitying eyes. Keep your secret if you have one, and restore Albert to us if it be in your power. All that I know is that if this be realized, I will embrace your knees, as at this moment I kiss your poor forehead which is moist and burning, added she, turning toward the chaplain with an air of great emotion, after having pressed her lips to the fevered forehead of the young girl. Even if she be mad, said she to the latter, as soon as they were alone, she is still an angel of goodness, and she seems more interested in our sufferings than we are ourselves. Ah, oh, father, there seems to be a curse upon this house. Everyone who has a lofty and noble heart seems struck here with derangement, and our life is passed in pitying what we are constrained to admire. I do not deny the good intentions of this young stranger, replied the chaplain, but that there is delirium in her actions you cannot doubt, madam. She must have dreamed of Count Albert last night, and imprudently gives us her visions as certainties. Be careful not to agitate the pious and resigned spirit of your venerable brother by such unfounded assertions. Perhaps also it would be more prudent not to encourage too much the rash enterprises of Signora Porporina. They might lead her into dangers of a different nature from those she has been willing to encounter hitherto. I do not comprehend you, said the canoness, Wincheslawa, with great simplicity. I feel much embarrassed how to explain myself, returned the worthy man. Still, it seems to me that if a secret understanding, very honorable and very disinterested, without doubt, should be established between this young artist and the noble count? Well, said the canoness, opening her eyes very wide. Well, madam, do you not think that sentiments of interest and solicitude, entirely innocent in their origin, might in a little time, with the aid of circumstances and romantic ideas, become dangerous to the repose and dignity of the young musician? I never would have thought of that, said the canoness, struck by this observation. 
But do you think, father, that the porporina could forget her humble and precarious position so far as to become attached to one so much her superior as my nephew Albert of Rudolstadt? The Count Albert of Rudolstadt might himself contribute unintentionally to such a feeling by the inclination he evinces to treat as prejudices the time-honored advantages of rank and birth. You make me seriously uneasy, said Wincheslava, whose pride of family constituted her chief and almost only failing. Can this unfortunate feeling have already taken root in the child's heart? Can her agitation and her earnest desire to discover Albert conceal any motive less pure than her natural generosity of soul and attachment to us? I flatter myself not as yet, replied the chaplain, whose only desire was to play an important part in the affairs of the family by his advice and his counsels, while preserving at the same time the appearance of timid respect and submissive obsequiousness. Still, my dear daughter, you must have your eyes open to passing events and not allow your vigilance to slumber in the presence of such dangers. This delicate part is your duty to perform, and it demands all the prudence and penetration with which heaven has endowed you. After this conversation, the canoness's thoughts were in a state of the utmost confusion, and her anxiety took entirely a new direction. She almost forgot that Albert was, as it were, lost to her, perhaps dying, perhaps even dead, and thought only of preventing the effects of an affection which in her secret heart she called disproportionate, like the Indian in the fable who, pursued into a tree by terror under the form of a tiger, amuses himself by contending with annoyance in the form of a fly buzzing about his head. All day long, she kept her eyes fixed upon the porporina, watching all her steps and anxiously analyzing every word she uttered. Our heroine, for the courageous Consuelo, was one at that moment in all the force of the term, easily perceived this anxiety, but was far from attributing it to any other feeling than the doubt of her fulfilling her promise to restore Albert. She never thought of concealing her agitation. So much was she convinced by the tranquility and firmness of her conscience that she ought to be proud of her project rather than blush for it. The modest confusion which the young Count's enthusiastic expression of attachment for her had excited in her mind a few days before gradually faded away before her serious resolution, free as it was from the least shade of vanity. The bitter sarcasms of Amelia, who had a suspicion of the nature of her enterprise without knowing its details, did not move her in the least. She hardly heard them and only answered by smiles, leaving to the canoness, whose ears were opened wider every hour, the care of recording them, of commenting upon them, and finding in them a terrible meaning. End of chapter 40.